This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathy of www.skippopscratch.com. Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Chapter 6 At this memorable date of his life, he was, on Saturday, returning from Alfredston to Marygreen about three o'clock in the afternoon. It was fine, warm, and soft summer weather, and he walked with his tools at his back, his little chisels clinking faintly against the larger ones in his basket. It being the end of the week, he had left work early, and had come out of the town by a roundabout route, which he did not usually frequent, having promised to call at a flour mill near Crescombe to execute a commission for his aunt. He was in an enthusiastic mood. He seemed to see his way to living comfortably in Christminster in the course of a year or two, and knocking at the doors of one of those strongholds of learning of which he had dreamed so much. He might, of course, have gone there now, in some capacity or other, but he preferred to enter the city with a little more assurance as to means than he could be said to feel at present. A warm self-content suffused him when he considered what he had already done. Now and then, as he went along, he turned to face the peeps of country on either side of him. But he hardly saw them. The act was an automatic repetition of what he had been accustomed to do when less occupied, and the one matter which really engaged him was the mental estimation of his progress thus far. I have acquired quite an average student's power to read the common ancient classics, Latin in particular. This was true, Jude possessing a faculty in that language which enabled him, with great ease to himself, to beguile his lonely walks by imaginary conversations therein. I have read two books of the Iliad, besides being pretty familiar with passages such as the speech of Phoenix in the ninth book, the fight of Hector and Ajax in the fourteenth, the appearance of Achilles unarmed, and his heavenly armor in the eighteenth, and the funeral games in the twenty-third. I have also done some Hesiod, a little scrap of Thucydides, and a lot of the Greek Testament. I wish there was only one dialect all the same. I have done some mathematics, including the first six and the eleventh and twelfth books of Euclid, and algebra as far as simple equations. I know something of the Fathers, and something of Roman and English history. These things are only a beginning but I shall not make much farther advance here for the difficulty of getting books. Hence I must next concentrate all my energies on settling in Christminster. Once there I shall so advance with the assistance I shall there get that my present knowledge will appear to me but as childish ignorance. I must save money, and I will, and one of those colleges shall open its doors to me, shall welcome whom now it would spurn, if I wait twenty years for the welcome. I'll be D.D. before I have done. And then he continued to dream, and thought he might become even a bishop by leading a pure, energetic, wise Christian life. And what an example he would set. If his income were five thousand pounds a year, he would give away four thousand five hundred pounds in one form and another, and live sumptuously for him on the remainder. Well, on second thoughts a bishop was absurd. He would draw the line at an archdeacon. Perhaps a man could be as good and as learned and as useful in the capacity of archdeacon as in that of bishop. Yet he thought of the bishop again, 
Meanwhile, I will read, as soon as I am settled in Christminster, the books I have not been able to get a hold of here, Livy, Tacitus, Herodotus, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Aristophanes. <laughs> Hoity-toity! The sounds were expressed in light voices on the other side of the hedge, but he did not notice them. His thoughts went on. Euripides, Plato, Aristotle, Lucretius, Epictetus, Seneca, Antoninus. Then I must master other things, the fathers thoroughly, Bede and ecclesiastical history generally, a smattering of Hebrew. I only know the letters as yet, hoity-toity, but I can work hard. I have staying power in abundance, thank God, and it is that which tells. Yes, Christminster shall be my alma mater, and I'll be her beloved son, in whom she shall be well pleased. In his deep concentration on these transactions of the future, Jude's walk had slackened, and he was now standing quite still, looking at the ground as though the future were thrown thereon by a magic lantern. On a sudden, something smacked him sharply in the ear, and he became aware that a soft, cold substance had been flung at him, and had fallen at his feet. A glance told him what it was, a piece of flesh, the characteristic part of a barrow-pig, which the countrymen used for greasing their boots, as it was useless for any other purpose. Pigs were rather plentiful hereabout, being bred and fattened in large numbers in certain parts of North Wessex. On the other side of the hedge was a stream, whence, as he now for the first time realized, had come the slight sounds of voices and laughter that had mingled with his dreams. He mounted the bank and looked over the fence. On the further side of the stream stood a small homestead, having a garden and pigsties attached, in front of it, beside the brook. Three young women were kneeling, with buckets and platters beside them, containing heaps of pig's chitterlings, which they were washing in the running water. One or two pairs of eyes slyly glanced up, and perceived that his attention had at last been attracted, and that he was watching them. They braced themselves for inspection by putting their mouths demurely into shape, and recommencing their rinsing operations with assiduity. "'Thank you,' said Jude severely. "'I didn't throw it, I tell you,' asserted one girl to her neighbor, as if unconscious of the young man's presence. "'Nor I,' the second answered. "'Oh, Annie, how can you?' said the third. "'If I had thrown anything at all, it shouldn't have been that.' Pooh! I don't care for him!' and they laughed and continued their work without looking up, still ostentatiously accusing each other. Jude grew sarcastic as he wiped his face and caught their remarks. "'You didn't do it. Oh, no,' he said to the upstream one of the three. She whom he addressed was a fine, dark-eyed girl, not exactly handsome, but capable of passing as such at a little distance, despite some coarseness of skin and fiber. She had a round and prominent bosom, full lips, perfect teeth, and the rich complexion of a Koshin hen's egg. She was a complete and substantial female animal, no more, no less, and Jude was almost certain that to her was attributable the enterprise of attracting his attention from dreams of the humaner letters to what was simmering in the minds around him. "'That you'll never be told,' she said deedily. "'Whoever did it was wasteful of other people's property.' <laughs> 
Oh, that's nothing. But you want to speak to me, I suppose? Oh, yes, if you like to. Shall I clamber across, or will you come to the plank above here? Perhaps she foresaw an opportunity, for somehow or other the eyes of the brown girl rested in his own when he said the words, and there was a momentary flash of intelligence, a dumb announcement of affinity in posse between herself and him, which, so far as Jude Folly was concerned, had no sort of premeditation in it. She saw that he had singled her out from the three, as a woman is singled out in such cases, for no reasoned purpose of further acquaintance, but in commonplace obedience to conjunctive orders from headquarters, unconsciously received by unfortunate men when the last intentions of their lives is to be occupied with the feminine. Springing to her feet, she said, "'Bring back what is lying there!' Jude was now aware that no message on any matter connected with her father's business had prompted her signal to him. He set down his basket of tools, picked up the scrap of opal, beat a pathway for himself with his stick, and got over the hedge. They walked in parallel lines, one on each bank of the stream, towards the small plank bridge. As the girl drew nearer to it, she gave, without Jude perceiving it, an adroit little suck to the interior of each of her cheeks in succession, by which curious and original maneuver she brought, as by magic upon its smooth and rotund surface, a perfect dimple, which she was able to retain there as long as she continued to smile. This production of dimples at will was a not unknown operation which many attempted, but only a few succeeded in accomplishing. They met in the middle of the plank, and Jude, tossing back her missile, seemed to expect her to explain why she had audaciously stopped him by this novel artillery instead of by hailing him. But she, slyly looking in another direction, swayed herself backwards and forwards on her hand as if clutching the rail of the bridge, till, moved by amatory curiosity, she turned her eyes critically upon him. "'You don't think I would shy things at you?' "'Oh, no. "'We are doing this for my father, who naturally doesn't want anything thrown away. "'He makes that into Dubbin.' "'She nodded towards the fragment on the grass. "'What made either of the others throw it, I wonder?' Jude asked, "'politely accepting her assertion.' though he had very large doubts as to its truth. "'Impudence! Don't tell folk it was I, mind. "'How can I? I don't know your name.' "'Ah, no. Shall I tell it to you?' "'Do.' "'Arabella Don, I'm living here. "'I must have known it if I had often come this way, "'but I mostly go straight along the high road. "'My father is a pig-breeder.' "'And these girls are helping me wash the innards for black puddings and such like.' "'They talked a little more, and a little more, "'as they stood regarding each other and leaning against the handrail of the bridge. "'The unvoiced call of woman to man, "'which was uttered very distinctly by Arabella's personality, "'held Jude to the spot against his intention, "'almost against his will, and in a way new to his experience. "'It is scarcely an exaggeration to say,' that till this moment Jude had never looked at a woman to consider her as such, but had vaguely regarded the sex as being outside his life and purposes. He gazed from her eyes to her mouth, thence to her bosom, and to her full round naked arms, wet, mottled with the chill of the water, and firm as marble. "'What a nice-looking girl you are,' he murmured, 
though the words had not been necessary to express his sense of her magnetism. "'Ah, uh, you should see me on Sundays,' she said piquantly. "'I don't suppose I could,' he answered. "'That's for you to think on. There's nobody after me just now, though there med be in a week or two. She had spoken this without a smile, and the dimples disappeared. Jude felt himself drifting strangely, but could not help it. "'Will you let me?' "'I don't mind.' By this time she had managed to get back one dimple by turning her face aside for a moment, and repeating the odd little sucking operation before mentioned, Jude being still unconscious of more than a general impression of her appearance. "'Next Sunday?' he hazarded. "'Tomorrow, that is.' "'Yes.' "'Shall I call?' "'Yes.' She brightened with a little glow of triumph, swept him almost tenderly with her eyes in turning, and retracing her steps down the brookside grass rejoined her companions. Jude Folly shouldered his tool-basket and resumed his lonely way, filled with an ardor at which he mentally stood at gaze. He had just inhaled a single breath from a new atmosphere, which had evidently been hanging round him everywhere he went, for he knew not how long, but had somehow been divided from his actual breathing as by a sheet of glass. The intentions as to reading, working, and learning, which he had so precisely formulated only a few minutes earlier, were suffering a curious collapse into a corner. He knew not how. "'Well, it's only a bit of fun,' he said to himself, faintly conscious that to common sense there was something lacking, and still more obviously something redundant in the nature of this girl, who had drawn him to her, which made it necessary that he should assert mere sportiveness on his part as his reason in seeking her, something in her quite antipathetic to that side of him which had been occupied with literary study and the magnificent Christminster dream. It had been no Vestal who chose that missile for opening her attack on him. He saw this with his intellectual eye, just for a short fleeting while, as by the light of a falling lamp one might momentarily see an inscription on a wall before being enshrouded in darkness. And then this passing discriminative power was withdrawn, and Jude was lost to all conditions of things in the advent of a fresh and wild pleasure, that of having found a new channel for emotional interest hitherto unsuspected, though it had lain close beside him. He was to meet this enkindling one of the other sex on the following Sunday. Meanwhile, the girl had joined her companions, and she silently resumed her flicking and sousing of the chitterlings in the pellucid stream. Catchton, my dear? laconically asked the girl called Annie. I don't know. I wish I had thrown something else than that, regretfully murmured Arabella. Lord, he's nobody, though you meant think so. He used to drive old Drusilla Folly's bread-cart over at Marygreen, till he prenticed himself at Alfredston. Since then he's been very stuck up, and always reading. He wants to be a scholar, they say. Oh, I don't care what he is, or anything about him. Don't you think it, my child? Oh, don't ye? You needn't try to deceive us. What did you say talking to him for, if you didn't want him? Whether you do, or whether you don't, he's as simple as a child. I see it as you courted on the bridge, when he looked at ye, as if he had never seen a woman before in his born days. Well, he's to be had by any woman who can get him to care for her a bit, if she likes to set herself to catch him the right way. End of chapter 6